Well, we had enough announcements, and I wanted to make sure that we got the service begun, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to say what a wonderful moment last Sunday was with all of you here, with the bishop and all of the confirmands, 18 of you all, and two baptisms. It was uh, quite a victory lap for all saints. I couldn't help but thinking about Pentecost Sunday in which some thousands were given the gift of the Spirit and wondered how they quite got through that when it took us about, it seemed like an hour to get through 18 confirmations last Sunday. So, but th- that was in the Lord's hands and we praise God for his increase of the gospel here in our place in Lynchburg. And we do continue to bless God for all of his graces and his talents that he pours out upon us all. It's not simply Father Heaton and I who are somehow gifted specially for the ministry and the rest of you all just simply take what we're handing out um, each Sunday. No, the whole of the church is bound up in the life of God, empowered by the Spirit, poured uh, out upon us with the gifts of the Spirit, all each in every way, different from the other and yet building up the body of Christ. And so when I see the bishop come and he representing to us the unity of the church, the rest of the diocese, the rest of the Reformed Episcopal Church, the rest of the church universal, the Catholic church represented to us in the great gift of the episcopacy, the bishops coming to minister to the people, I rejoice And I give thanks uh, to God for you every day in my prayers, and I pray that he would continue to be in our midst. And it is that sense of confidence that I hope that you got from our epistle lesson today, Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's one of the most joyous of his letters. Paul uh, can be um, sometimes a bit, um, well... Um, angry sometimes if you're thinking about the letter to the Galatians or perhaps his, his letter to the Corinthians where he's faced with much conflict and yet here in the, his letter to the Philippians there's a sense of overwhelming joy that he begins with uh, his letter to them talking about how it was that he had come to know their love for him And he writes in return his love for them and with this overwhelming sense of confidence, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That sense of confidence should be with each one of us through all our lives long, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in God's love towards us. In the ancient Greek games, and we do a lot of Greece and Rome here at New Covenant schools, in the ancient Greek games, there was an, there was an event that we haven't seen translate into the modern Olympiad. It was the torch race. In ancient Greek, it was known as the Lampadedromia. The Lampadedromia. It was a torch race. And it was, if, um, if you've forgotten, all of the Olympic Games were devoted to the gods, so they had a, the opening ceremony was a great, uh, a great ceremony of worship and of sacrifice to Zeus, but this particular torch race commemorated Prometheus, the great patron of humanity, as he brought down fire from the gods. And in this torch race, these men who ran the race were rewarded by being allowed to light the fire 
from the great and sacred fire at the beginning of the Olympiad that commemorated Zeus's gift to humanity that had been um, acquired by that great Prometheus. But the winner of this torch race was not the one who finished first. He was the one who finished first with his torch still lit. So there's that added level of difficulty. Can you run and run well, but not running for running's sake, but running while your lamp remained lit? And we see that same sense of confidence in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He writes to them effusing of his confidence of God's great gift in his son Jesus poured out upon his people in his grace, knowing surely that he who has begun a good work in each one of us will see it fulfilled on that last great day. The Philippians were all Greeks. For the most part, as far as we know, they were all Greek converts. And we hear about the work in Philippi in the book of Acts, where Paul sees a vision of one standing there calling to him, saying, come to Macedonia and help us. You see, Philippi was not in Greece proper, but in those hills north of ancient Greece, kind of the West Virginia to the our Virginia there. It was the hill folk, the Macedonians, who were um, known as wild and woolly hill men. They, of course, had been victorious under the guidance of both Philip II and Alexander the Great, his son, who became the greatest of all of the ancient Greek leaders who took over the known world and reached out into the Orient. But Philippi was built by Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, and the city was named for him. And after, the, after Rome had come into power, it became a Roman colony and was the site of that great battle between Brutus and Cassius on one side and Octavian and Mark Antony on the other, that great battle of Philippi that lasted for two whole weeks. In the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we see how Paul finally did come to Philippi, preached in the synagogue, and as was often the case, thrown out as a heretic, and then went out into the highways and byways, preaching the good news of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, to the Gentiles. And Lydia met him down by the creek and believed the good news and was baptized. And then later, of course, that great story of the Philippian jailer, as Paul and his associates were thrown into jail, surely to, to meet a gruesome end, only to be saved by God's mighty and literally earth-shaking power. And the whole of the Philippian jailer's family was baptized. This is the church of Philippi. They had embraced the good news about Jesus. Paul had told them again and again that there was a new king in town, not Caesar, but Jesus the Messiah. Paul, evidently writing from prison, most likely from prison in Rome, extends to the Philippians his greetings years after he had come to them and planted the church there, thanking them for their continued support of his ministry. They had sent him a gift, he says, probably money, to support Paul as he spent his time in jail, not able to earn his own living. And he wrote to thank them 
and to encourage them in the faith that had been delivered to them and now continued to grow and bear fruit in their lives. Paul was confident that what God had done for them, he would see to the end. You see, my friends, the great gift of grace means that we can be confident that the one who loved us, even when we were yet sinners, now continues to love us and bring us to himself day by day to guide us, to guard us, to convict us when we sin, to give us the gift of repentance so that we might be restored to fellowship. The same God who sent his Son and his Spirit to give us new life will surely finish it. The Philippians had believed the news. They had received Paul and Silas. They had joined themselves. Paul speaks to them as partners in their ministry. Can you imagine what that would sound like to these early Christian converts to be called a partner with the greatest evangelist the world had ever seen and probably has ever seen. The great St. Paul saying thank you for your partnership in the gospel, in the business of bringing the whole world into obedience to Jesus the Messiah. And they had not flagged in their devotion to Paul or to Jesus. They continued to support Paul, even though he was in jail and through the ministry of one Epaphroditus. They all continued as partners in the gospel. Paul is confident that God would not let them fall. He was confident that he would bring them all to glory. You see, my friends, participating in the gospel as we take up that great call upon our lives. Participating in the gospel means participating in the life of Jesus. Paul will write in another place, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ, you see, is to be part of him, to take our place as a member of his body, to be empowered by his life, to be challenged, to go out and continue his ministry in our own lives, knowing that it is not we who work, but he who works in us. And so these Philippians had joined in the hope of Jesus, and they had joined in the ministry of Paul. God would do it. Paul rejoices, but they must do it with him. They must live lives of fruitfulness, but they should also be aware of the fact that they must live lives of forgiveness towards one another. We see that theme of forgiveness worked out in the following chapters. We didn't hear that theme developed in our brief epistle today, but the theme of kenosis, of emptying oneself. Paul says to the Philippians, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ. And what was that mind of Christ? But he did not hold on or grasp the glories of eternity, of heaven itself, but instead submitted himself to be born of a virgin, to suffer the death on the cross and to rise mightily from the grave so that at the name of Jesus, every knee under heaven and earth shall bow down before him. This mind, Paul says, must be in you, 
that for a Christian, we must seek to serve others and yes, to forgive those who have sinned against us. And we hear that theme in our gospel lesson today. How many times should we forgive? Peter asks his Lord, seven times. Jesus says, 70 times seven. You see, the, the act of forgiving perhaps is the most unique characteristic of Christian living. If we will not forgive, we cannot be forgiven. We come to the end of our Trinity season now. We are only just a few weeks. We really only have two more weeks of Trinity tied, and then we have the Sunday next before Trinity, looking right at Advent 1, and we are thankful. It has been a long Trinity season, that endless green season that we come week after week. But I would propose to you that this is a lesson on our lives. We wish that it was marked with excitement, but life is often monotonous. It's often boring. It's often that one thing that we've always done and we're going to do it again. But just like the Greeks running that torch race, our objective is to finish with the torch lit. With faith alight, though smoldering even, we follow the one who has finished the race definitively, Jesus, our Savior. The Trinity season in its length invites us to consider the whole of the Christian life lived in devotion and, yes, in dogged patience. Practical Christian living has been our theme over the last weeks. The armor of God, the necessity of forgiveness, looking back always to the gift of the Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost. Remember the beginning of the Trinity season at the Feast of Pentecost. Looking back to that great gift which we all received, but looking forward to Advent, the day of Christ's coming the great day of joy. We must consider deeply how it is that we have been called to follow Jesus confidently, yes, but also taking radical self-assessment. For the reality is, is that we haven't done always as well as we ought to keep our torches lit. We have often despaired of God's love for us. Instead of sharing that confidence of Paul's, we often despair of God's love. We have not loved our Christian brothers and sisters with the kind of love that Paul showed to his Philippian brothers and sisters. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have surely not loved our enemies or forgiven them the way that Jesus forgave us, each one, an enemy before he made us his brothers and sisters. But where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Certainly not in ourselves, for we are poor and sinful. But we find a sure place of confidence in God, his love towards us, his grace towards us, his forgiveness of us, his mercy and love abound. So my friends, as we draw to the end of our Trinity season, let us hear again Paul's prayer for the Philippians. But yes, for us, that our love may abound more and more in wisdom and knowledge. That is what he prays for us today. 
that our love may abound in wisdom and in knowledge, to be filled with the very wisdom and knowledge of God, that we may be given to good works that bear fruit. Paul's language is that we approve the excellent. How often it is we're content with the vague and perhaps tacky and cheap, but to approve and devote ourselves to the excellent and to bear a full harvest of fruit of righteousness. That is, devoting ourselves to living as God's covenant people. That we may be blameless, Paul prays, that we may be blameless when Jesus returns. When we see him, that we might, might rejoice at his arrival. And that in all of this, my friends, in all of this, that God may be glorified in us. May it be so for us here at All Saints. Amen.